So this morning I'll talk a little bit more about the third foundation of mindfulness, the third establishment, pastor, place, third contemplation of mindfulness. So I'll give a little bit more overview of uh, how we can think about that. So what is the what is the context or way of understanding it? And I'd like to talk a little bit more about labeling and just review at this point what the different uh, labels are that George and I have given. I find it helpful to, to hear them uh, several times. And some of the questions that uh, a handful or more of you are asking have to do with what are the, what are the labels. And then I'll talk very specifically about some strategies, five strategies that are given in the Pali Canon for working uh, with uh, the, the particularly difficult uh, mind states at the, the third foundation of mindfulness. Having a mind with sensual desire, one knows, as it really is, that one has a mind with sensual desire. Having a mind without sensual desire, one knows, as it really is, that one has a mind without sensual desire. Having a mind with aversion, one knows, as it really is, that one has a mind with aversion. Having a mind without aversion, one knows, as it really is, that one has a mind without aversion. Having a mind with deluded distraction, or we could say thinking, one knows as it really is that one has a mind with thinking or deluded distraction. Or having a mind without deluded distraction or thinking, as it really is, one knows having a mind without deluded distraction or thinking. So this is what happens when we look at the Pali Canon. We get these long lists that keep uh, keep repeating themselves uh, just to drive home uh, this quality of bare attention, of just knowing, uh, Sampajana knowing, clearly knowing what's happening in the present moment, knowing, uh, knowing a thought as a thought, knowing a bodily sensation as a bodily sensation, knowing a sound as a sound. Um, I like to say we're just knowing the bare ingredients of life and all of this is to orient the mind away from self-concept, self-construct, away from uh, more phenomenologically the experience of me or I that has a narrative, that has a history that has a place that it's going or not going. So if, if we are a, a particular person with a place we're going in the conventional sense, that brings up a lot of grasping. And if um, we're a person with a history with certain me memories and regret, regrets, it brings up a lot of aversion, maybe grief. So we're, we're, we're looking to, at least in the context of formal practice, uh, 
it said uh, we're looking to see things as they really are, to see uh, ultimately the true nature of all things, that they're impermanent, that they're not comprised of a me or I in the way that we normally experience that. And to the degree that we fail to understand and act from that place of clear seeing or wisdom, we suffer. Uh, we're over-identified, we're attached. Um, and so that brings uh, an additional, if you will, an additional layer of pain on top of the expected uh, pain of life. Life is difficult. And actually the Buddha's not saying that that's going to change. <laughs> it's not good marketing necessarily, but um, <laughs> we're, we're not trying to make that go away. Uh, we're, you know, the classic story is, is the one of two arrows, and I'm not sure where this will go. The two arrows might even show up in what I'll read this morning, but, you know, life is difficult, and there's uh, some pain in the body or some mental anguish, and we have a relationship to those difficulties that result in the second arrow. And we're talking about the possibility of uh, not inserting the second arrow. And as you'll see today, once the second arrow is inserted, which is conditioning, that's what happens, uh, then the task is to remove the arrow, okay, so that we, so that we suffer less. So the third uh, pasture or foundation or category for mindfulness is chitta, uh, or, or chitta, like Chithurst Monastery, C-I-T-T-A, uh, C-I -T -T -A. C -I is C-H, chitta, so chitta or mind. And depending on the version of the Satipatthana Sutta we're looking at, there's uh, 8, 10, or 12 uh, categories, and uh, George mentioned um, a group of eight, and, and the reason why eight is typically referred to is because these eight are the eight that show up in all three different English translations of the Satipatthana Sutta, so we can, um, the way the scholars do it is they say if something shows up in all the, all the translations that we have available, our best guess is that's actually what the Buddha was teaching, and all the other variations that only have one, uh, that only have one version, if you will, those that was added later, or that was added later. Okay. So for our purposes, we're taking uh, a list of eight, and uh, we're simplifying them into wanting. and not wanting, aversion and no aversion, and diluted distraction or thinking, and no diluted distraction or thinking. And it's often the case that the mind and body will just settle, and they'll just be an overarching calm or well-being a basic quality of being okay, and we can uh, label this, if we like, peace. Um, moments in practice where there's, we're not, we're not feeling the gravitational pull of these polar opposites, wanting and not wanting, right? They can be very, very strong, 
uh, and we're also not caught up in fantasy. There's actually there's not a lot of thinking happening. Uh, we're basically we're basically okay. Now there's one one thing I'll add here, uh, and it's it's in a way it's similar to how some people use a visual image of a person's face for meta practice. Uh, sometimes when we're doing vipassana uh, and we're, we're, we're labeling and we're getting used to that, we're refining that and we're starting to, to note pretty quickly, sometimes it feels as if nothing is there to note. And it, it depends on who you talk to, but some people will say, well, the mental and physical phenomena are always rising and passing away, but, for, but awareness is not sharp enough, mindfulness is not strong enough to actually see what's happening. And we can almost look too hard, and it can and, and it can lead to to thinking. And uh, one of the teachers that George and I keep referring to, Sayada Uindaka, he taught me in those occasions to just say, uh, uh, "Not knowing or don't know." And that is just uh, keeping my, in my experience, is keeping my mind from getting flooded with overanalysis, which leads to thinking. Because typically, uh, not knowing is bringing me back into the um, the simple reality that I'm not aware, and then it, you know, almost in, invariably right away, see in. You know, it's like or you know, feel in. So it, it sort of snaps me back. Okay. It's almost like we're aware of not being aware. We're bringing ourselves back in that way. <coughs> The appropriate approach would be a middle way between excessive expectation, where the practice of mindfulness is undertaken only to reach attainments, and an attitude of disdaining any type of wholesome aspiration, considering mindfulness as something only truly practiced when one remains in the present moment, without any sense of a higher goal beyond what happens in the here and now. So we're aiming for something quite lofty. Uh, at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, it says that this is the one path, the only path, the highest path uh, for the full attainment of nirvana, uh, complete awakening, liberation. And what Pico Analio is saying here in, in all of the passages that I'll refer to come from Pico Analio this morning, what he's saying is that we can hold that and should as a uh, intention. You know, there's a lot of confidence uh, in the possibility of that conveyed in the Satipatthana Sutta. And he's saying, other than holding it as a loose intention, we don't have to do anything but learn how to pay attention to the present moment. That it's really the only thing we need to do. Become uh, more adept at this task of sensory, sensory clarity. Uh, at the first foundation of mindfulness, the body, and become more adept at noticing these uh, basic uh, experiences of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And as we refine our practice and uh, our capacity for awareness overall, we really do start to notice what's happening in the mind. Um, and we can, you know, we can even watch thoughts 
come and go without getting, and, and you're having, you know, so many of you are having this experience and you know this, that you can watch thoughts rise and pass away. Uh, you can uh, notice, be aware of the process of thinking without getting caught up in the content. And that there is the game changer. Content is almost always uncomfortable at some level. If we're paying attention, even the interesting, fun, fantasy-oriented, uh, feel-good ideas about the future or reminiscing on uh, some event, that tends to elevate attachment to sensory experience, sensory pleasure, which leads to dukkha. And otherwise, we all know that thinking will lead to difficult memories, uh, hope, fear, worry, uh, all the lists of things we want to happen or hope don't happen. This comes rushing into the mind very, 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 very quickly. But if we see a thought arising and we just are simply aware, we note or label, and uh, what we're doing is we're giving that phenomena its natural expression, if you will, which is to also pass away. Do you see that? All things are said to be impermanent, so how is it that it seems we get what we call stuck, or we have a, a long stretch of uh, particular difficult mind states? You know, there's uh, some identification, there's some clinging, there's some ordinary trying to figure it out. And so we get stuck in that, we, we get stuck in that mind state, right? So the practice is, uh, in a sense, giving back to ourselves uh, Ajahn Amara said that what we're doing in, in practice is we're, uh, we're, we're, giving, we're giving nature back to itself, we're giving, uh, which we have mistakenly appropriated as our own. So we're, we're allowing the law of impermanence to unfold. And as we um, abide in this place of mindful observation, there's, a, there's an inner steadiness or an okayness, because things are just coming and going and coming and going and coming and going. And we're, if you will, exempt from that wrestling match with uh, the task of trying to feel better or contort life to be the way we want it. We're just, life is just happening. It's, it's the big dealness of it goes away. The, uh, the purpose of mental and physical objects is to be known. And the purpose of mindfulness is to know objects. That's it. Just like that, we're, we're more free. Um, and so this all, of course, is pointing to the absence of story or narrative. So just as a just as a review, we're um, we're labeling, and this is the basic instruction you're getting from um, probably all insight or, or vipassana teachers. And there's a lot of different labels, and you know, um, it just matters that we're paying attention. It doesn't. I don't think it really matters so much what uh, labels or systems you've been systems of labeling that you've been. 
you've been taught, but I do think that uh, it's very useful when on retreat, when a former uh, system is provided, that you do it so that you can bump up against it. And at the end of that retreat, you have the opportunity to know, you know, uh, does that system work for me? Is that a good is that a good practice? Do I want to do I want to do that again? And so, by way of review, what we've suggested is uh, see, feel, and hear. Okay, see in, see out, feel in, feel out, hear in, hear out. First foundation or pasture of mindfulness. Second foundation is vedana, feeling or feeling tones. Again, not the psychological or Western notion of feelings, uh, but rather simply pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And then now in the third, again, in the third foundation uh, of mindfulness, uh, wanting, uh, not wanting, aversion, no aversion, thinking, no thinking, uh, or, or peace. Sometimes I'll say ease. <coughs> Formerly, when I had not yet awakened to supreme, you might have to take some of this language with a grain of salt. This is from the Pali Canon. Formerly, when I had not yet awakened to supreme, right, and complete awakening, I thought like this. I should better divide my thoughts into two kinds, with thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of harming as one kind, and thoughts without sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts without harming as the other kind. After that, so now what the Buddha is going to say is he had an idea that something would be, he, he had the thought that something would be a good idea, and then he just says that he did it. You know, he applied it. So he says, after that, I divided all my thoughts into two kinds, with thoughts of sensual desire, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of harming as one kind, and thoughts without sensual desire, thoughts without ill will, and thoughts without harming as the other kind. Practicing like this, I went to stay in a remote and secluded place, practicing diligently with a mind free from negligence. When a thought of sensual desire arose, I at once realized that a thought of sensual desire had arisen. I realized that this is harmful to myself, harmful to others, harmful in both respects. This destroys wisdom, causes much trouble, and does not lead to attaining nirvana. On realizing that this is harmful to myself, harmful to others, harmful in both respects, that this destroys wisdom, causes much trouble, and does not lead to attaining nirvana, the thought rapidly ceased. So there's, there's something about labeling. When we, when we make a distinction that this thought is a product of complex conditioning and will lead to suffering, and we just see it as it is, thinking, hearing, that we give it back its nature, if you will, its full permission to pass away. And here we are in this empty moment of receptivity, receiving the next mental or physical phenomena, which we observe 
in an unattached way, it passes away, another object arises, we note it, label it, it passes away, right? Another way of talking about this is opposed to strict or exclusive concentration where always the object of attention is one thing and we're always coming back to it. Now, we don't know what the object of attention is until it arises. That's a significant difference between concentration and insight. And in fact, the possible objects of meditation are many, and they're alternating from one to the other. And so once we start to get into insight practice, we're starting to notice, we're starting to see uh, relationship, we're starting to notice cause and effect. Certain things we do or don't do cause suffering, and certain things, certain responses, certain things we do or don't do yield peace or calm or equanimity. So this is the development of, of wisdom. <coughs> when a thought of sensual desire arose, this, this sensual desire uh, phrase that I keep, re- keep reading, this is, this is wanting. This is craving. This is clinging. This is attachment. Just wanting. When a thought of sensual desire arose, I did not accept it. I abandoned it, discarded it, and vomited it out. (laughs) When a thought of sensual desire arose, I did not accept it. I abandoned it, discarded it, and vomited it out. So we're looking to disrupt our conditioning, in a sense, which is the belief that this continual thinking about something is going to resolve something with finality and we're going to feel better. And the more we practice, we realize that most of the time it doesn't actually happen that way. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a real turning point in the practice when we've seen this so many times, uh, you know, that you know, maybe we're sitting in the meditation cushion, we're just walking down the road, and this, this image or thought comes forward that has historically and always swept us away, and we just see it as a thought. That's it. And in and, 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 and some more wise aspect of ourselves is just done with it. You know? We're just like... And at this point, it's, it's kind of a test. It's like, what's going to happen? You know? Is everything going to fall apart? Um, and, we, and we learn something in this. Uh, and, and, we, and we walk away thinking, you know what? I don't think I really need to chase that thought anymore. And the thought is going to come back. It's, it's, we, haven't done, we haven't done that work of cutting it off permanently yet. You know, it's going to come back. And then, and then we apply, we remember what happened last time. You know, last time we didn't we didn't really go down that track and it and it went well for us and so it just keeps getting easier and easier and easier. We we stop buying in to the temptation, um, basically. You know.
So there's a correlation with uh, right, right effort and the project, if you will, of orienting the mind away from unwholesome thoughts and toward what we call wholesome thoughts. Uh, wholesome and unwholesome can start to sound uh, moralistic. Some of us push back against that. Uh, it's a probably a good translation of the Pali, but we can say for wholesome if we like healthy or helpful or skillful, and for unwholesome, unhealthy, unhelpful, unskillful. And it all sounds pretty good, right? Uh, and we know that there are many thoughts uh, that come, they seem to stick, they're really hard to deal with, and they disrupt our concentration, uh, they lead to uh, a host of afflictive and complementary mind states that are uncomfortable, deteriorate our self-confidence, uh, keep us stuck and worry about the future, have us uh, caught up continuously in replaying events from the past. And, uh, and so what do, we, what do we do about that? And so I thought what I would, what I would do in the short bit of time remaining is, is go over the five strategies that the Buddha offered at the third foundation of mindfulness for dealing with uh, unwholesome or uh, reoccurring uh, difficult thoughts or narratives that we have. So there's five ways. The first strategy is to replace, is to replace unwholesome thoughts with wholesome ones. In the Pali Canon, we have uh, uh, several different uh, examples taken from uh, trade craft of the time. One is that we do this as a carpenter removes a coarse peg uh, with a finer peg. So this is a re this is a replacement practice. The practice that we're teaching is to replace unwholesome thoughts with metta. Right, George talked quite a bit about this, and I brought it up, mentioned it a few times. So we're replacing unwholesome thoughts with metta. So if you get uh, you get caught up, particularly in in ill will, frustration, anger, um, you you actually come back into the metta mind by doing a little bit of formal practice, a little bit of metta practice. One of the teachers in, in Burma at a certain point had me doing five to ten minutes of metta every time I sat down to do vipassana. Uh, and then as I mentioned the other day, and then I would switch to vipassana, and as I mentioned the other day, taking a period uh, at any point during the day, maybe in the middle of the morning or in the middle of the afternoon, and I would just, I would just swap out a, a vipassana period with a period of metta. So that strategy is not always going to work. However, at such times, this approach might not be sufficient. And in spite of one's attempt to straighten out the mind 
by replacing the unwholesome thoughts with something subtler that is wholesome, the mind may continue to return to the issue that causes the unwholesome mental reactions. The idea of straighten comes from another metaphor. It is just as a carpenter or a carpenter's apprentice who might apply an ink string to a piece of wood to mark a straight line and then cut the wood with a straight with a sharp adze to make it straight. Okay. So uh, what do we do if the first strategy doesn't doesn't work? Contemplate these thoughts as evil and beset by danger. <laughs> these thoughts are unwholesome. One who is filled with these thoughts will not attain penetrative knowledge, will not attain the path of awakening, and will not attain nirvana. So we get into the realm of uh, contemplation or reflection. This is different than elongated thinking. Um, this is not narrative. It's, it's more just a, a very basic reminder that if I stay indulging this line of thought, it's going to deteriorate my practice. So... We're, we're, we're basically making a choice based on some, some level of sound knowledge that we're cultivating through our practice. This, this doesn't work for me. Here I am again. Here I am again. It hasn't, I haven't ever resolved this in the way that I'm currently trying to resolve it again. Right? But this might not work either. (laughs) Clearly at this point, the topic that has been obsessing one's mind is so prominent, so much engaging one's mind, that neither the attempt to replace it with something wholesome, first strategy, or becoming conscious of the negative effects of one's unwholesome thoughts has been successful. So again, the second category requires you to remember that there are negative effects connected to what you're doing. Okay, that's it. You just remember that. And you trust yourself. You trust your practice. You connect with the willingness um, to try something different, the aspiration to really wake up, to to have a different experience overall. To be more, in a sense, to be more uh, self-competent. At this point then, moving to the third strategy, the strategy is to set it aside consciously, to make an effort at dropping the issue at stake, rather like looking away or even walking away when one does not want to see something. I like this explanation. It's so clear. This is not repression. It's a mindful, conscious choice. Um, There are two strategies available to me. I've used them 
they're not work. It doesn't matter why they're not working. They're just not working. And uh, this is an important issue to me. Um, it's connected to real things and people in my life. We're not denying that. And I'm going to address it when I get home. I'm going to call my family member. I'm going to call my partner. Gonna, I'm going to do some journaling. I'm going to have a conversation with my therapist. I'm going to call my mentor, a meditation teacher. Now, now is not the time or place. It's not, it's not, I'm not able to resolve it here. And even though it's an important, real, relevant, uh, purposeful uh, dilemma, question, inquiry in my life, the purpose here is to work through these stages of meditation and learn have achieved the fruits of practice, uh, if you will, in a classical sense, and we're uh, considering that this path of thinking is not useful to that end. Okay. So this is nice because it doesn't. It, it's saying that that, that that thinking is not always a problem, and we might have to think things through. Uh, but we're making a conscious choice to turn away from, to walk away from. I use the example uh, most often when I'm teaching in Boston. My community is used to the example of putting down. We're going to literally take what it is that is troublesome and bothersome, and we're going to put it down. Game over. Okay. But that might not work. <laughs> My guess is that maybe, and I can't validate this anyway, but not unlike all the, the monastic codes and precepts, uh, there were probably very, very few uh, teachings at the beginning. Like maybe the only strategy was strategy number one. And then the practitioners would come to the Buddha and they would say, look, it ain't working. <laughs> you know? and, and the Buddha would be like, shit. <laughs> so he'd go back to his kuti and he'd be like, hmm, i got to come up with something else here. <laughs> and so he'd, you know, he'd come back and go, try, try this. <laughs> <laughs> and he taught for he taught for so long, you know. He taught he taught for so long that I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was so much experimentation. And then toward the end, he was able to really see, like, okay, you know, there's, there are some strategies that work. And he probably threw out a lot of stuff that he tried. And that's how the precepts. There weren't a lot of precepts for monastics, you know. You know, he said, be good people and meditate a lot. You know, and then they were drinking and having sex and stealing stuff from each other. <laughs> so, all right, maybe we'll make some rules. <laughs> the. Th the fourth category is 
it's described as um, making, a, in a sense, making a commitment to understand uh, thought formations, um, to understanding the origin of thought formations. I'll read a short passage and then I'll try to explain it. According to the sutta, this method requires giving attention to stilling the thought formations. Judging from the reference to formation in both versions, he's talking about two English translations of the sutta. Perhaps the idea is to be calm. Perhaps the idea is to calm the volitional driving force behind those thoughts. This is the heart of strategy four, to calm the volitional driving force behind those thoughts. In other words, once the strategy of setting aside the thoughts has not worked, one faces them straight away. One faces them straight away and tries to look at the motivational force that stands behind them. For me, um, and I'm still uh, going through my own discernment and exploration of the, the mapping of different models and, uh, you know, in certain, uh, you know, using, you know, complex models, I feel like, you know, I can be in this inquiry for years as I mature into an understanding of it and how to apply it in my own life and how to explain it to others. But I think there's a distinct bridge here to uh, attachment theory um, that has us, uh, that validates the practical uh, nature of the functionality of having some sense of where conditioning comes from and uh, allowing that to be, if you will, um, almost a source of release like this. This is not, my mind is not my fault. Remember I said that the other day, my mind is not my fault. So if I walk away from a conversation where someone has offered some constructive criticism and I'm, my body is contracted and my, I notice that my sense of self-confidence has deteriorated and I'm, uh, defending myself. I'm defending myself and I'm creating a strategy for a future conversation where I can convey that I was right or am right or am smart. And I know simply that the person loves me and we're not judging me but that they had a different view or that uh, maybe if I had done something just slightly different it would have had a more uh, powerful or clear impact. Um, if I know that just that is happening, but that the information that per person shared with me is not a complete devaluing or disregard for who I am, for my goodness, for my intelligence, um, then that situation, in fact, was no problem. And my relationship with that person is not in jeopardy at all. Right. So I have some understanding um, notice that all of that understanding may not have come from my meditation practice. It might have come through other modalities that I'm uh, drawing upon and mapping against my meditation experience. And now I'm also able to use my meditation experience to deepen my understanding and application of that other map. 
even a clinical map. Taking a lead from the simile, the point would be to ask oneself, why am I getting so agitated about this? Or, what is it that gets me so worked up about this? This then can lead to the realization that there is no need to keep hurrying along mentally, but one may instead stand still, even sit or lie down, allowing the mind to relax in order to come out of the strain and stress of mental obsession. So that's what it, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like when we can um, separate the present moment from our conditioning. That's what it feels like. So that might not work. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's a fifth strategy. uh, And this is one of the Buddhist teachings that shocked me, one of the only teachings that really shocked me, because my experience with the Dharma has been uh, one of, uh, largely one of agreement and resonance. Just, you know, when I was uh, a senior in in college at the University of Maine studying um, poetry and sociology, I I took a class called the Three Three Pillars of Sociology, and I, I read, you know, probably through the lens of Weber or Durkheim, a basic uh, just a basic overview of you know Eastern philosophy, and there was this simultaneous sense of I totally get it, and I haven't embodied it yet. But it, it, it on a certain level, it, it totally made sense. Uh, and it's been like that for me for, with most of the Buddhist teachings, but but uh, this one feels different, and it's called the the forceful approach, and it's very masculine, and it is uh, there's sort of like some. Uh, warnings that come with it, which is that, you know, it is, it is really a last resort. Um, but it's, um, it's more like, in, instead of like putting aside, you know, it's more like, it's more like, <laughs> I'm totally done. You know, um, there's a kind of, I'm just not going to do it anymore, you know? I'm just not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to do this to myself. This is the last resort only. This approach only has its place when all the other methods have failed, when one has been unable to replace the unwholesome thoughts with a wholesome object, stop them by reflecting on their danger, set them aside for the time being, or calm the situation by looking at what motivates the continued arising of these thoughts. 
On its own, this type of forceful approach is not capable of leading forward on the path to liberation. The point of this method is thus only to offer an emergency break. Just as one who keeps engaging the brakes will not advance, so too the use of this method on its own will not result in substantial progress on the path. Nevertheless, emergency brakes have an important function in preventing an accident. The same holds true for this method, which can at least prevent an accident by word or deed when one is completely overwhelmed by unwholesome thoughts. So in summary, the strategies are to turn to something wholesome instead, that's metta, to realize the danger of what's going on, to set aside the issue at hand, consciously, gradually relax the motivational force behind it. That's my primary bridge to the material we're going to start exploring tomorrow. Use forceful restraint as an emergency break. So easy to pick up your conditioning again. <laughs> okay, so I'll end here, and uh, and then we'll uh, we'll head off to small groups. No, uh, no, no time for questions today. This is uh, Stonehouse, by the way. Stonehouse was a uh, 13th century uh, Chinese hermit monk poet. These are the folks who uh, often did a fair amount of formal practice. And uh, if you read their, um, their biographies, normally have, would have some administrative position. And that was, that was sort of the high goal outside of priesthood in that part of the world in those centuries and you know they're a small group of folks who would get fed up in uh, the busyness of that and they would retreat to the mountains. Some of them would live out their whole lives there and uh, practice Dharma and write, write poetry and Stonehouse was someone that uh, very few people knew about including uh, people in China and Red Pine who is arguably one of the most, arguably the most well-established um, uh, translators of, of Chinese poetry. He was doing research uh, on the poet Han Shan, and he stumbled across some old poems by uh, Stonehouse, and so this is pretty, this is pretty new stuff. Actually, it's really old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> The great way has never known abundance or want. <coughs> Those who don't see it choose profit instead. Sages and wise people hide from the world where counterfeit truth prevails. Reign in your senses and stop indulging. Be ever mindful and nothing else. Once your body disappears beneath a robe, Say goodbye to a thousand rebirths. 
The great way has never known abundance or want. Those who don't see it choose profit instead. Sages and wise people hide from the world where counterfeit truth prevails. Rein in your senses and stop indulging. Be ever mindful and nothing else. Once your body disappears beneath a robe, say goodbye to a thousand rebirths.